right, before we get talking about days four through six today, I want to introduce you to a water bear. Water bear. Uh, the, the technical name is a tardigrade. Uh, I'm not sure. If, I'm sure some of you guys have seen one of these before. They are. Um, they're also called um, moss piglets because <laughs> they live mostly in in lakes and in mossy areas. They they feed off kind of deca- decaying plant matter and chlorophyll and stuff. They're about. They looks kind of scary. <laughs> they're about the average size of one of these water bears is about one millimeter long. So they're very 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 small. But you can find them. You can find them anywhere on the planet, pretty much. That there's plant matter and water, and they are the hardiest creature on the planet. People more than a cockroach. So after the sun supernovas, these guys are going to be around. Um, so they have eight legs and four to eight claws per foot. They, um, they can survive in outer space without any protection for 10 days. And they can survive environments as low as minus 328 degrees Fahrenheit and as hot as 300 degrees Fahrenheit and be just fine. And if conditions are poor, they pull their legs and their head into their body and they, they dry themselves out. And they can stay that way for at least 30 years, not without anything at all. Some estimates are as long as 120 years, but no one's been alive long enough to do one of those tests. <laughs> so, so they're kind of like practically immortal creatures, and they can they can reproduce both sexually and asexually. So if there's just one of them, they'll just make more of themselves. And if so, they're pretty amazing. They're they're um, here's that that's kind of a colorized version of a actual image of one. That's a non-color. It looks a little creepier, <laughs> and it has a circular mouth that it, like extrudes out, and like there's these little sharp teeth that suck in the, the plant matter and stuff. So, my uh, my nephews, it's my nephew's favorite animal. They they are classified as an animal, not an insect or anything, because um, something something science classification. I don't understand, but um. They're, they're one of the, like I said, they're the hardiest thing on the planet, and I, I was excited to share these guys with you. And, and now you know what they are, David Criswell, if you get this in a text from me. <laughs> LOL. <laughs> Turn <Tardigrade>. to <laughs> So they're basically, I, I saw one thing that said they're, it's like God decided to make an animal with superpowers and then accidentally made it one millimeter in size. <laughs> and if you guys have, I don't know, any, anybody like Star Trek, you don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> the original or next generation? Well, the, the the new 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 one that just came out like this past year. I saw a few episodes and gave up. Um, but the they find this animal that is a basically a tardigrade the size of a cow, and it like destroys half the ship and stuff. So that's I thought that was funny. Anyway, water bears. Moving on. So last week. Um, Actually, for the past four to five weeks, we've talked more or less about how Genesis 1 focuses on, if you look at the the context of things historically and everything, it really focuses on the the functional origins of things in this planet rather than the material origins of things. Once again, not saying that God didn't do the material origins of things at all. I I totally believe he did. I just don't think that this is the story of those origins. That's another story that we don't have. Um, 
So how it, we talked about how not only did the ancient Israelites, but all their contemporary cultures had this same focus, uh, like philosophically, if you want to put it that way, on functional origins and how, and how things didn't really have true existence. They didn't really, really exist unless they had a meaning and a purpose. Kind of like for us, a company may have a building, but they're not really a company until they're doing business. So it's kind of the same kind of thing. We have that concept here in, in our modern day times where we tend to focus more on the material stuff of existence rather than the purposeful stuff. Um, so then if, there's, if, existence meant, if existence meant having a purpose and a function, then creation means defining those functions and assigning those purposes to the things that are there and organizing things in the right way so they're in an ordered system. And So what the, all this comes down to is that I want to interpret Scripture literally, and I think that this is actually the most, if you want to interpret Scripture the most literal way you can for Genesis 1, the most literal way to interpret it is not just to read it as an American and assume that we know what it means. It's to understand it the way that the original author would have meant it to, to, meant the person to understand it who first read it. So in the last class, we talked about, um, we got into the, some of the details of how the functions, this functional uh, view of Genesis impacts our interpretation of the days of creation. We talked about days one through three. Because if we're used to thinking of it as material origins and we look at it as functional and purposeful origins, it's going to mean something different. And so I, I emphasize also that you don't need all the archaeology and the other uh, ancient texts to get to this, to this conclusion. You can look at just the passages themselves. Like day one talks about how God created, uh, God said, let there be light, and he called the light day. The question was, why didn't he just call light light? He called light day because day is a description of what light provides for humanity. So it's a functional description. So f- from the get-go, he's talking about how the things that he's setting up in this planet are set up to give things to humans that they need. And so this entire story is really focused on providing humanity with the things that they need to survive and to be, to be successful on this planet. And we'll get into more of that today. Um, so we talked about how if you look at days one through three, they're not necessarily talking about um, creating a thing like photons of light and creating the sky and the, and the waters and stuff because God just does separation of things and assigning things and says, let the plants grow. He doesn't say, like, I'm poof, there are plants. Um, so what, what it comes down to is that day one is really getting at God provides things for us, the basis of time, the basis of weather, and the basis of food. And all three of these things are, as, as we said, foundational for ordered life on earth for humans. So today, um, we're going to focus on days four through six, and I'm going to get to day six as quickly as possible because I think that impacts us more for even, there's not, there's not a lot in this class up to this point that has had much impact on like how we should we live our day-to-day lives type of question, but I think this one really, day six really does, so I want to get to that as quickly as possible, but please stop. I have some questions along the way, but stop me if you have any questions or, or anything like that. So looking at day four through six, if you, um, days one through three had some pretty important functions set up in this for, for humanity on earth, like I just said. And what day four, four through six does is it shifts from talking about 
setting up these functional spheres of time and like this cosmic sphere and the terrestrial sphere of, of uh, creation and start setting up functionaries, things that function in those spheres and in those spaces. Um, sometimes they function as that sphere, like we'll get to in a second, and sometimes they function with each other in that sphere. But um, whether it's stars, plants, animals, or humans, they're all placed in their respective spheres and given jobs to do and given a purpose, every single one of them. Um, and another thing that we'll see is the bit, there's, there are quite a, quite a few big differences. We've talked a lot about the similarities between like Egyptian and Babylonian creation texts and Genesis and how we can learn from that. But we start getting into days four through six of some of the big differences between these ancient, uh, quote-unquote, pagan texts and the Bible. For example, um, all other stories of creation focus on how humanity is and how the creation is supposed to be serving the deity and, and bringing things together for the God for in some way, like to please the God. But what do we see in Genesis is how creation is structured in such a way to serve humanity and also humanity has a very different role in creation according to Genesis than the other texts that we've looked at. I've been obscure enough. Let's move on. So let's, uh, if you have your Bible, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. I'm going to put the text up on the screen as well, but I want to read through day, the days before as we talk about them. So day four, <coughs> Genesis 1, 14 through 19. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky and that separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times, days and years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky and to give light to the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light to the earth to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the, first, the fourth day. So at this point, you may be able to spot some of the functional direction of things in this. What's some of the functional language that you see and the purpose-giving language that you see in day four? Yeah, they're, they're there. Why? To govern the day and the night. Okay, what else? What do, what do the moon, the sun, moon, and the stars do? They give light. They provide th- they provide light. And they and as uh, was already mentioned in day one, they separate the day from the night. We have the difference between the two to help uh, provide structure for time again. Um, Exactly. They, they provide signs, seasons, days, and years. And so if you look back at day one as setting up the construct and basis of time, then when you get to day four, you have things that help to do that even more. And by having these, the sun and the stars and the moon, humans can tell the difference between the... We have signs, seasons, days, and years. And, the, and these are all things that matter only to humans, really. And this word seasons is not the word season like summer and winter. It's like um, like uh, feast seasons and harvesting season, that kind of a 
a thing. So it's not the 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 weather patterns. It's so the time for them to celebrate different things in their in their culture. Yeah. I'm not sure what the signs refer to. Uh, I know that the, the, the Israelites were very much not into the Zodiac. Yeah? Zodiac, Jeff? Um, or were they? Oh, so it was a lot later? Yeah. I, I, I didn't get into what signs are referring to. Uh, maybe I should have. Sorry. Yeah. Right. Um, my feeling is that Christianity in the West has forsaken this by adopting this other calendar. Um, it's like the moon has become irrelevant in this culture. I haven't really gotten to that point. I mean, there's lots of ways to track time. There's lots of ways to track days and, and years. And I think what what this passage is getting at is that God has provided these things for us to in order to track the time however we end up tracking it. Um, but that, that's kind of a, a bigger subject that I'm not really going to get into today. Um, so looking at these again, once again, it's a description of setting up these, these for purposes and the functions, not really saying, uh, and it's all about what they do and what they provide for us, not really about the material creation of them. And another thing of note, one of the differences between other ancient cultures and this one is that God makes it is very careful. Seems to be very careful not to name the sun and the moon. What does he call them? Two great lights. There's a big, a greater light and a lesser light. Once again, describing them by what they do, because all the ancient cultures worshipped the sun and the moon in some way, shape, or form. And they had names that related to gods. So by God, by Yahweh, specifically not mentioning names for these things, just describing them by what they do. He seems to be kind of saying, like, the, these things are under my control. They're not equal with me, but they're something that I am doing for you. Um, I want to briefly talk about, well, I'll come back to the what made means later. We'll get to that later. Day five. So day five, let's read day five. Genesis 1, 20 through 23. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters in the seas. Let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. So on day four, we have functionaries being installed in the dome of the sky in the firmament to provide the functions of that space that they were in. What we have here in day five are functionaries, if you want to call it, it's a weird word, but things, beings being put into this sphere in order and their functions relate more to each other than to the the sphere that they are in um so if you look at how we talked about how like the sun and the moon are described as 
the greater light and the lesser light, how are the animals described here? Yeah, where they live, according to their kind, and what they do. They, the ones that team, critter and crawl, the ones that fly. Um, so once again, back to what, what they do and the ones that swim. What purpose does God give the birds and the living things? What's their job? Oh, I, I, did, I missed that next slide, sorry. I read it, but I didn't show it. This would help. What's their job in verse 22? Be fruitful and multiply. Make more of yourself. Fill the earth. Fill the ecosystem. Become like part of the world. Um, and one, one really fascinating thing that is a little bit hard to see if you're reading this in English instead of Hebrew is the fact that um, this word created shows up again. We, we kind of breeze over it, because, but it's the only, only the second time that the word bara, the Hebrew word bara, is used. And if you remember back to when we talked about verse 1 of Genesis 1, bara is only a word that God uses, that only, only God can do this thing. Only God can create in this way. So why, I may have given a hint a couple weeks ago, it's a very obscure question, so don't expect to know it. What, what's the significance of God? I mean, it's a big deal if God is suddenly saying he created these things. What's the significance of him creating the great creatures of the sea? Well, life, but he's, he's already brought things to life already, birds and fish and things like that. But what, what about the great creatures of the sea? No, that's an interesting thought, though. When you describe Bara, I kind of thought you could almost put the word assigned. Is that right? Is that the right word I'm thinking of? Assigned to mean that? Yeah, Bara doesn't mean, like, create from nothing. It's, it's a, the idea to assign functions. And so, every, so God assigned functions to the, the heavens and the earth in verse 1. And then beyond that, he... he this, this word, he's doing the signing of functions. He's making stuff in, in, the, in the form of doing things. He's doing lots of things. But this is the first time that he actually, it's called out specifically. What it, I'll, I'll answer the question because you're not going to get it. Um, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry for asking the question to begin with. I shouldn't have asked. Um, what, it goes back to comparing the, the look, looking at the ancient texts around the area, Babylon, in Egypt and things like that. So especially Egyptian, remember the folks who received this first had just spent 400 years in Egypt and they came out of Egypt before the, when they got this text from when Moses wrote it down. And so especially the Egyptian uh, stories of creation all, are all about, like, like I mentioned, like the, uh, the primeval hill coming up and there's dry land and the waters are pushed away and then there's a, a dome put over it, one of the gods is the dome, things like that. But there's this concept of everything outside of the human sphere of, of life is water. 
these cosmic waters are used a lot in Egyptian and Babylonian imagery is, is there. And the, the, the idea was that these cosmic waters are just full of giant sea monsters, essentially. And so what God is saying is that, and so what these sea monsters do in all the ancient stories in Egypt and Babylon, they, they try to kind of break in through the, the firmament and mess up the order of the earth change the functions and change the purpose of things and take over. And so what God is saying here is, what, like by calling out this word specifically, it's a, it's a big deal word, only I can do this. He's saying these, these um, things are not outside of my control. I am the one controlling these sea monsters that you may have heard of. You know, you, know, you may have heard it from other folks that these things are out there, but I've, I'm the one who I gave them a job. And I, they're under my control and under my sphere of influence. And so I, I just think that it's, it's, it's maybe kind of an obscure thing. Maybe I'm missing the point. But I, it seems to be a, kind of a cool call-out, one of those differences between these ancient texts and Genesis 1. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of that sprinkled throughout this, is of saying how God did it differently than like uh, Marduk and all these other ancient gods. And so if you were a person in that time and you read this section, you would have immediately understood God is saying he is better than all the other gods. He's more powerful than anything else out there. He is the, the top God, period. Um, okay. Day six, this is where I only wanted to get to. I think I've got enough time. Depends on how much you guys talk. Because I, I, I do want some discussion on this one. So this one's a bit longer. <coughs> and God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, and the livestock and the, creature, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals each according to its kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God said, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Okay, so what two main, two main things happen on this day? What two things are defined or created or whatever you want to say? What two things? Land, animals, and people. Right. Christy has taught this class many times for, to the kids. Land, animals, and people. So animals first. 
Um, so in this, in this passage, we see again this passive kind of creation that God is describing to, the, the, the text is describing. It says, let the land produce these animals. God doesn't really, it doesn't say that God like creates them out of nothing like we've talked about as, as far as a material aspect of things. It says he made them, and if we have time, we can go back and talk about that word made, asa, which just means to do something. It doesn't really mean make. So God did the animals. Um, he said, let the earth produce these animals. Let the earth produce this stuff. Um, and he, then he, what he does is he gives them permission to develop and grow, come out of the land. And their function is to multiply and fill the world. Um, and what is the first animal mentioned? If you remember back to verse 26, huh? Livestock. Yeah, livestock. The first animal, it's, it says beasts of the field. It's translated lots of different ways, but the, the Hebrew word is actually referring to cattle, like cows. So if this is a story saying to people, I set the world up for you, the first animal he mentions is, is cows, basically. I gave to you the thing that you need, the, the livestock that you need. And cattle are used often in, in a lot of the uh, sacrifices and things that the, the Israelites did. Um, it also may even kind of uh, harken back to how the Israelites, one of the first things they did, they created a golden calf and to, to worship this calf. And God's like, I made those, like, period. So quit worshiping them. They're mine. Um, so either way, it's something rather important to the Israelites that that's the first thing that he mentions in this list of animals. Um, now getting to creating humans. Yeah, here we go, humans. Um, so, so far, the beings made by God in this story had functions relative to themselves, to each other, uh, pretty much. Humanity is a little bit different. Like I mentioned, humanity is given a different job than in other stories in the ancient world. God assigns humanity functions in relation to what? He, the animals are in relation to each other to, to increase and be fruitful and multiply. And that was one of the things that humans are, were given the job to fill the earth. Okay, what, what, what other jobs have humans been given in this passage? Right, to rule over all the other stuff. We're supposed to, ha we have functions in relation to the creatures of the earth to subdue and rule them. And we have a functional existence in relation to something, one more thing. Yeah, to God. Because we are in his image. Um, which of these is the most important? Huh? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, which of the functions? Yeah, the the, the 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 being in God's image. You're right. Yeah, being in God's image is is it's arguably the most important one because as we talked about, I think what God what God is doing here is He's trying to describe not a like a uh, construction process of the of the earth. He's trying to give us purpose. He's trying to give us spiritual truths, and one, thing's, one of the things he's emphasizing here, and he emphasizes it multiple times, and he kind of says it over, like multiple times, like in Israelite poetry, 
Jewish poetry was saying things multiple times. He really emphasizes this image of God thing. So this, we might want to pay attention to that. This seems to be a big, important deal. He doesn't just say, I made people like animals. He really emphasizes it. So um, it's a potentially huge topic. We could probably do many, many class sessions on what the image of God means. Um, what are some thoughts about what this might mean? Yeah. That we have a soul? Like God is a spirit? We have, yeah, that's true. Yeah. God is holy, so we were created initially holy. Yeah. Jeff? It's a question I've been wrestling with for a while, in the last couple of years, what this means. And I don't really have a good answer for you, for you but it, it is weird for me that in the New Testament especially, there's a lot of talk about being restored to his image. And so there's almost the impression that it's... There's some verses that go back and forth with this, actually, in my head. But you're almost left with this idea that whatever it was is something that to a degree we felt from. And Christ came to a degree to restore the image of God in us that we're being conformed into his image again mm-hmm. through the one who was again said to be the very image of God. Um, and so that's that's something that I've been left to wrestle with in my mind. Because the Old Testament doesn't touch on, at least that I'm aware of it, us falling from that image who says that. Right. But we get the language of being restored to that image all over the place. Yeah, if we've fallen from it, what was it? And what does restoring to it mean? Yeah, John. So I think it definitely has to do with relationship with God. Yeah, Brad? Uh, the most popular uh, thing that I've heard as far as the image of God goes is like when a king would take over a city or whatever, he puts his, a statue of himself there. Look, this is who rules this place now. And if we are supposed to be the image of God, we are supposed to reflect to the world, this is who your ruler is. Yeah, I really like that idea, and I'm, I'm going to run with that a little bit because if we, like we've been talking about this whole class, if we're going to understand what things mean in this book, we need to understand what it meant to them. So, a, a place, a good place to start is at least for this story, because I think the image of God is a very multi-tiered, multi, it's a very deep thing, and there's lots of aspects to it. But looking at it from this perspective. Um, asking what that would have meant to the people who first read this book. And I I mentioned this a a few weeks ago, that in the ancient cultures of the time, Egypt, Babylon, the things, the cultures they they would have had to contact with, this idea of an image of God was very common. And that is why uh, idols were such a big deal back then, because they believed that the idols contained the image of the God, kind of like you're saying about the statue of the king. That, and what this implied was that this, they, they knew that the idol itself wasn't the god, but that that idol, that idol, the statue, had the breath of God, which is a very common idea. And this image was given to the, 
the, the quote, image of God was given to this idol through God breathing into it. And so what this meant was that the, de- the deity's work can be done through this thing. I am, God is empowering this thing to do his work, that he is a representative, the statue is a representative of the God. And so when you look at the, the, this section in, in chapter 1, and even moving into chapter 2, you see a lot of this imagery of humanity being empowered to do works of God on the earth, and he assigns us to do works for him and to be his representatives. And that's actually kind of an idea that's carried throughout all of Scripture, is for us to be God's representatives. And I think that that, maybe to Jeff's point, if, if we've fallen away from that, in, the, the, you can fall away from that in many ways. <laughs> but falling away from being God's true representatives, like being the face of God to, to humanity or to the world, then, then Christ can bring us back to that. What this, is, this first story is talking about is, is getting to the point that um, I think that humanity is empowered to do God's work on, on the earth uh, and in the various ways that God's work can be done. And so I think that that's what's implied by the emphasis on the, being made in the image of God. Um, and looking at the timeline of when this was written, like when this is in the Bible, this story is not necessarily talking about being a representative to non-Christians, right? Because this was written to Israel, and they, they were supposed to kind of keep amongst themselves for, most, for the most part. It wasn't about, initially, about being a representative to other people. I think what we see from this passage is that this is talking about being representatives to the planet and doing good to, to the earth. Um, and we've, given it, we've, we've essentially been given a godlike role on the planet. And that, I think that carries through to the story of guard, the Garden of Eden, how Adam and Eve were supposed to tend the garden and take care of it and watch over it. Um, the naming of things is a huge part of creation stories in the, in the ancient Near East. When you named something, you created it. A thing didn't have a purpose until it had a name. And, and God, said, God made all the animals, but what did he have Adam do? He had Adam name every animal. That wasn't just so they'd have a name that he, Adam could remember. <laughs> that was so, by doing that, it's like God was saying, now they're your responsibility. You named it, you bought it, right? Um, and this idea is it's very humbling because when we think of... Um, the fact that God has given us these, this huge responsibility, we should take that seriously and not just pretend like it's not a thing. Um, and I think what it comes down to is that uh, creation's job, the job of the creation, the role, the purpose, the function that God has given the created world is to serve the needs of humanity, whether it's through time, the weather, to provide our food, the, the, the crops, the animals that can increase in abundance so we have them to use for food and whatever we need. So creation's job is to provide for the needs of us. But at the same time, humanity's job is to serve creation as God's representatives. So if humanity has, if it goes both ways, what does this mean? 
what might this mean for us today? If if this is the if that's if this is our job to serve as creation as God's representatives, what might that mean for us today? Yeah. I think throughout uh, the Bible, there's mentions of um, being good stewards. Um, mm-hmm. You know, with your with your talents and with your time, and um, I think this is a like the first and primary example that. You know, in all things, we have a responsibility as God's children to um, care for the, you know, environment that He gave us. Yeah. Yes. I like the way the voice puts it in verse 28. This translation says, God's giving them the directive to be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth. It says, I make you trustees of my estate. Trustees of the estate? So is this so care for my creation and rule over everything? And I just think that's really a neat way to put it. Um, I think we're trustees. Yeah, we're trustees of God's God's earth. Yes. Yeah. Um, two points when what this says to me is that when right wing Christians like Ann Coulter says this chapter teaches us to rape the earth, we should utterly and totally repudiate what she's saying. She said that on TV. And also, 10 years ago, I heard John Hagee give a speech where he said he was mocking um, ecologists, and he said there is no Mother Earth, there's only Father God in Heaven. And you, you cited a verse that said God used the Earth to produce animals. Um, so I think there's a lot of sensitivity to the needs of the Earth here, and I think that is often dismissed or diminished in our culture today. Yeah, it's one of those areas that can quickly get into politics <laughs> for some, well, yeah, for, for some bizarre reason, the politics has taken this, this idea of the environment where, as, as something to, like, fight about. And it, it's always shocked me, just before, even before getting into, like, functional ontology of Genesis 1, all that kind of stuff, looking at just a, a plain reading of Genesis 1, it's clear to me that God is saying, I made you, you're in my image, your main job is to take care of the animals and take care of the earth. That's your job. And to be my representatives to everybody else in, in any way possible. And the fact that that's politicized is just sad. But, and the fact that, I, I think what it, it comes down to is that um, you know, this is not only something for Adam and Eve to do. This is something for humanity to do. And it, the chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis show how all this stuff is interconnected. It's going to sound kind of hippy-dippy to some of you guys, but the, we are connected to the earth, that God formed us out of the earth, as it says, as it says in chapter 2. And, and man, man, men and women are connected to each other, pulled from the side of. And, and we are connected to God because we're in his image. So all these things are connected and it's all about a relationship between all these things. Um, this, this serving each other and this, the purpose is to have this proper relationship between all these things. And so what this gets down to is, what is the purpose of Genesis 1? I've been teasing this for like six weeks <laughs> as we've been looking into this. So I think, what, there, are th- I think there are three purposes of, uh, after looking through all this stuff, 
of Genesis 1. I think the first and primary one is to give us our identity. We are in the image of God. We are to be representatives of God to the earth, to each other, to people who don't believe, to everything, period. We are God's representatives on this earth because he has breathed life, his breath into us, and given us his image. The second one, the second purpose is to establish our relationship to God, not only in his image, but all of chapter one is saying, I did this for you guys. I set this all up in such a way that it works for you, that you can find value in it, that you can find what you need. And so God did a lot of stuff with us in mind, and it shows his deep and uh, lasting love for us, I think. And thirdly, I think it defines our relationship to his creation. And I think we need to think of it as his creation and how we have a relationship to it. We're not just consumers of the planet and we can just do whatever we want and, and strip things out and not think about it. Because our like first job God gave us is take care of things. So I think as Christians, I think we have a literally God-given job to take care of the earth in any way we can. And, and at the same time, I think there's balance, of course, using the things that God gave us, but in such a way that we take care of things and that we um, are doing the job that God would do. If we talk about what would Jesus do, you know, what would, how would Jesus take care of the environment? It's a good, a good thing to ask that we don't often ask. I think that's something that we need to think about. Um, there's a great, great quote um, I'll close out class with this, uh, this one and one more. It's from the, the sequel to this book that I've been talking about, the, the Lost World of Genesis 1. He, he wrote another book called The Lost World of Adam and Eve, which is also very good. Um, he says, Who we believe as we are as a race has significant influence on how we interact with the world around us. Christians should care for the, about the environment because we have come to understand that God has appointed us as caretakers of his world, As his representatives, we have been charged with subduing and ruling, but that leaves no room for exploitation or abuse. We have have the responsibility to maintain the space that is ultimately sacred and ultimately his. I think that we need to remember that. Um, So next time, uh, we'll move into day... Next time is going to be all about day seven. And and so days one through six have been about creation of the, the world, how it's set up for us, and using the uh, company analogy, it's like the offices have been assigned. Everybody knows where they're sitting. Everybody knows who they report to. Um, the workday is determined by the clock. Foremen have been put in place for the factory to get ready. But nothing's going to happen until the owner of the company comes down and takes his seat in his office. And that's what day seven's about. So we'll talk about that next time. Thank you.